So as I mentioned, this is New Year's Day in the calendar of the church, and uh, we kind of come in with a whimper, but that's not all bad. Um, Every year in the four weeks leading up to our celebration of the mystery of the incarnation, Jesus, God become flesh, the church takes this four-week journey. And uh, the best words I know to summarize the four steps of this journey are as follows. We wait, we prepare, we repent, or we turn around to face the light, and then finally, after all that waiting and preparing and turning, then finally, hopefully, we are ready to receive the gift of the light of the Son of God. What I hope to do, what we hope to do in worship the next four weeks, is spiritually move through these four postures or steps as we approach Christmas Day. Now, there are a lot of things that compete for our time and attention this time of year, right? We have some shopping to do. There's maybe some lights still to hang at your house. There are tons of parties and family and work activities. There is so much to do that I confess many years. uh, it's, It's almost as if the holiday season possesses me rather than me having the time and spiritual space to take hold of the truth and the light that God is holding out in front of me. We are pledging to you that when you come into the sanctuary for worship, it is not going to be fast-paced. It is not going to be frenetic. We are going to try to help guide our spirits through these four steps or stages so that when we worship together on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, we can really experience the mystery of the goodness that God would have for us. So you can consider this a four-week meditation on the light. We really want to give you time and space to be present. So in meditating on the light, um, I'd like to share with you a little bit about um, my daily routine and rhythm. which is, I roll out of bed, and usually I try to sing a verse of, Oh God, our help in ages past, before my feet hit the floor, say a quick prayer, and then, even though I am an immoral musician by nature and prefer to stay up all night, uh, Chicago in this church has slowly been teaching me to be an early morning person. So my routine now is to be out of the door and walking a couple miles, listening to devotions, preferably right as the sun comes up like right in the middle of my walk. I'm not recommending this for everybody. I'm just I'm saying, like, this, this is what I do. And one of the things that um, really helps me every day is when I see the sunlight come, I mean, when the sun, there hasn't been much sunlight the last few days, but when the sun breaks over the horizon, like, my body and my spirit suddenly begin to, like, wake up and pep up and energize and sing in a way. It's like something magical happens on that early morning horizon. It's even worth rolling out of bed really early for. Now, in noticing this, this experience that I've had more and more of in recent years, um, I've also become aware that, scientifically speaking, there is literally something that goes on inside our brains and physiology. Perhaps you've noticed, sunrises and sunset, what color does the sky turn? You've never seen one? 
right? Orange, pink, uh, I mean, these beautiful colors that do not exist except at the far bookends of the day, right? Now, we know that light looks white to us most of the time, right? But if you send light through a prism, it refracts into all the colors of the rainbow. You still with me? Doing a little elementary school science here. All right. At the beginning of the day, the light of the sun is going through so much of the atmosphere that the blue spectrum of light doesn't make it all the way through. And what we're left seeing is the opposite side of the spectrum of light, the, the orangey pink side. And there's something in our bodies that knows like, oh, the sky is orange, and over the next 10 minutes, it's getting more blue. When our body sees that, it triggers something in us that makes us know it's go time. Right? In the middle of the day, is there any orange in the sky? Well, the sun. But other than that, the sky is blue, right? All that orange light, it gets overwhelmed by the blue spectrum light. And then at the end of the day, the same thing happens. The blue slowly gets sucked out of the light spectrum as the light travels through so much of the atmosphere, and we're only left with orange. And when that happens, when our eyes see blue diminishing and orange taking over, our body knows... All right, it's time to shut it down here. You yawn a little bit. You might suddenly feel the urge to take a nap or go to bed. Are you still with me? (laughs) Okay. By the way, this is why if you watch like a lot of TV at night or look at your phone late at night or your tablet or your computer, you are washing yourself in blue light. Like that's what comes off our devices. And it it kind of messes with our brains because it makes us think, oh, it's noon. It's go time still. And then you go to bed and you wonder, why am I sleeping and not all that well? Well, you know, because we're washing ourselves in blue light until one in the morning. That is a total aside. (laughs) If you want to sleep well, watch the sun go down at 4.20 and then go to bed. (laughs) So there's something about the dawn that tells us it's time to be alive and awake It sends triggers into our very cells. And there's also this promise of an empty slate, of a day that is to come. That's what I love most about the sunrise, that feeling of promise. What might this day hold? Now, in the Christmas story, something very similar happens to this dynamic that we all feel at sunrise. Literally, when Jesus is born, something changes in the sky. Not everybody notices it, but a new light dawns. Matthew chapter 2 puts it this way, speaking of the Magi. Will you please uh, read the words of the Magi when we get to that point? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked... Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When the star appeared in the east, they knew that it was the beginning of a new day. These magi, these wise men, were among the few who knew that the star meant the promise of something, a clean slate, a new day, a new age spreading out and stretching out before not just them, but all of humanity. And these magi, knowing what was in front of them, 
vaguely set out on a journey that spanned not just months, but probably years, not just hundreds of miles, but in some cases, probably more than 1,000 miles. So when Jesus' star or light rose in the sky, I want to notice with you that it was, it was full of promise on the one hand, but it was also a profound disruption. The Magi were probably, you know, watching the stars, happy wherever their home country was, and all of a sudden something new happened, and their lives were disrupted, and it caused them to take this epic journey. We, by our very nature, are not people who like disruption, right? We like to, especially in these winter months, hunker down, settle down, you know, not too much to, like, shake up our world or rock our business. Thank you very much. We like to make our plans and then keep our plans. And yet, when God is involved, always, 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 there is some kind of break-in to our preferred lives, a disruption. And through this disruption, something good and graceful can begin to come. Now, not every disruption is a good disruption, right? Um, I mean, if you live in Cleveland, you thought your team was going to win the World Series, and then you were disrupted by the Cubs. That was a great disruption here. We just went through this election, and it is profoundly disrupting. However you feel about it, can we all agree it's been disrupting? The dictator of more than half a century in Cuba has just died. There is a major disruption in the Western Hemisphere. So these magi, they made the most of their disruption. I would like to take a little turn with you and wonder for a couple moments about where these wise men or magi actually came from. Uh, it's going to take about five minutes, okay? I'm giving you a forewarning, putting you on notice. I hope there's a payoff in this. The ultimate answer is we don't know for sure, but I'm going to uh, follow the thoughts of one of my favorite Bible scholars, a guy named Kenneth Bailey, who's about 90 years old now, was born, raised, and taught in the Middle East his whole life and is an expert on rural life in uh, the Jordanian desert, okay? So, notice that the wise men say, um, it says that the Magi came from the east and they saw his star when it rose, which is also in the east, right? So, a little bit of geography here. If you know where Israel is, if you just go wet east out of Israel, you end up in Iraq, Iran, India. I have always assumed that's probably where the wise men or the magi came from. In fact, my mom had this little nativity set when I was long, and one of them kind of looked ethnically Indian, one looked kind of Arabic, and one looked of African origin. And because we had that little set, I just kind of assumed, oh, they must have traveled from all these different countries. Probably not. I love my mom anyway, but she misled me with this manger scene. Okay. So if you are a citizen of the United States and live in California and you refer to the East, where do you mean? Lived in California for a while, and if we told people we're going back East, it could mean anywhere East of the Mississippi. Know what I'm saying? 
You could go to Michigan, and that was back east. If you live in Chicago and you say, I'm going, I'm going east or I'm going back east, what do you mean? The east coast, right. Same words meaning totally different things, right? We're like 1,500 miles away from New York, right? I mean, that's a, a big ge- geographical difference. If you grew up in Israel and you said, I'm going back east, and here's the point, Matthew was a Jew from Israel writing to other Jews from Israel, so when he says the Magi came from back east, what does he mean? For a person from Israel, back east means anything east of the Jordan River, which isn't all that far east of the Mediterranean Sea. Right? You got the Mediterranean Sea and just like 70 miles inland is the Jordan River and after that is the desert. So Matthew, a Jew, writing to other Jews says, Magi came from back east. There is a lot on the other side of that river. In the earliest days of the Christian church, it was assumed that the wise men came not from Iraq, not from Iran, Persia, not from India, but from Arabia, or what we would call Saudi Arabia. In the year 160 AD, among the earliest Christian writings, there's a man named Justin Martyr, who was a Palestinian Christian, and he has recorded in a book a conversation with a Jewish man named named Trifo. Very creatively, his book is called Conversations with Trifo the Jew. In his book, Justin writes, the wise men from Arabia came to Bethlehem and worshipped the Christ child and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this is affirmed among at least five other early Christian writers between 100 and 200 AD. This is a little interesting. In the year 1920, uh, a British archaeologist named E.F.F. F. Bishop was in the Jordanian desert, and he ran into this tribe of nomads who called themselves Al-Kokobani. Now, the word kokav in Arabic means planet or star. And this British guy asked them, why do you call yourselves by this name? And the chief of the tribe told him, because our ancestors saw a planet in the sky and traveled to Jerusalem to worship the great prophet Jesus when he was born. That's kind of interesting, right? That um, that 1,900 years later, there's still some living memory among this uh, Arabian tribe of their ancestors actually go, so what? So what if the wise men are from India, or Arabia, or Pakistan, there is this connection to Old Testament prophecy. This is not the ultimate so what. We're getting closer. In Isaiah chapter 60, the scripture says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, a darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people's But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This is starting to sound a little bit like magi or wise men or 
the three kings as we sometimes know them. And then the passage continues this way. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, that is in northern Arabia. And all from Sheba will come, that is in southern Arabia, bearing gold and incense and perhaps myrrh and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. So this prophecy in, the, in Isaiah chapter 60 pretty clearly hints that folks from the Arabian Peninsula will be attracted to the light. Now, folks in Old Testament days thought that the light would be the glow of the city of Jerusalem, that the city of Jerusalem would be the shining city, this light on the hill that would illuminate the whole world. In fact, the light that the Arabians come to is a person, not a city, right? The Magi come to Jerusalem, they go to Herod's palace, but they've not found their destination yet, right? They're looking for a person. All interesting, but so what? Here's the so what. If the wise men, if the Magi, come from Arabia, in the presence of Jesus, the newborn King of the Jews, there is not only Jesus, the Son of God himself, but there are shepherds, right? Remember that part of the story? Where do the shepherds come from? Israel. They're Jewish. And if the wise men are Arabians, there literally is this meeting of mortal enemies in the presence of the child Jesus. I mean, if, if it all happened at once, if it happened, you know, over a span of time, I don't really care. But the point is, in the birth of Christ, this amazing reconciliation of the peoples, of mortal enemies, is happening because a new light is dawning. Once upon a time, there was a man named Abraham. He had a wife named Sarah. They couldn't have children. So Abraham got his maidservant Hagar pregnant. She had a son named Ishmael. Then Sarah had a son named Isaac, and they hated each other. The people of Israel, the Jews, are the children, spiritually and genetically, of Abraham and Isaac. The Arab world are the spiritual and genetic children of Abraham and Ishmael. And for lo, these thousands of years, there has been misunderstanding and disagreement and war and hatred and bloodshed. It's still going on today. But when Jesus, the light of the world, was born in this humble major stall, what no government has figured out how to do God accomplished. Jews and Arabs kneeling together in worship before the new light that was dawning. 
It hasn't yet taken over global politics. <laughs> but in the church today, there are Arabs and there are Jewish Christians, right? There are Dutch Christians. There are Ethiopian Christians. There are German Christians. Like, that light that has dawned is still doing this good work. One of the most awesome things about the church is that such a diversity of people can kneel before the same great God. Such a diversity of people, even under this roof, can kneel before Jesus, the light of the world. Some of us are poor here this morning. Some of us are powerful in terms of the world. We have preschoolers in this building, and we have professors. We have plumbers. We have PhDs. We have Puerto Ricans. We have Cubans. We have Chicago garbage folks. It was assumed that when the light came, it would come to Jerusalem. But the real truth is it came in a tiny little person. So friends, we are waiting, right? Just like after Isaiah's chapter 60 was spoken, there was a long time before God came in the flesh. And we are still waiting in some different ways. All of us are waiting in our own unique way for the light of God to rise like the sun and bring some kind of dawn in our own spirit. If you've only been walking with God for a little while, if you've been walking with him for decades, we still need more of that light to rise over our hearts and our spirit. And we wait. Just like as human beings, we cannot demand the sun to rise. I can only roll out of bed, get my bones outside, and wait for it. So it is with the deep work of God. All we can do is rouse ourselves, put our spirits in a posture of receiving, and wait for God to do what only he can do for us. Friends, is there some part of your life where the light of God is especially needed for you today? Is there a place of suffering, a place of frustration, a place of weakness, a place of sickness, a place of wondering, a place where you maybe are even consciously resisting the light of God. Together, friends, as an act of worship, um, I'd invite you to close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. This is an answer only you can give. Where in your spirit do you need the light 
of God to dawn. Your job is simply to name that place and then to be willing to wait. Come, light of God, and dawn in the hearts of your people. We are small and weak, God. We need the sunrise of your mercy, your presence, and your grace. Church, we believe that Jesus is actually going to show up again. That he not only showed up once in a manger, but he is going to show up in his church, inside us. We believe Jesus is actually going to show up again. in a big, cosmic, universal, massively disrupting sort of way. And we wait. But it's not a waiting of frustration. It's not an anxious waiting. It's like waiting for the dawn confident that those rays are going to burst over the horizon, filled with promise that the empty slate of some new reality that is going to be better than anything we could ask or imagine is just a breath, just a heartbeat away. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you came to us in a manger in Bethlehem and forever interrupted life as we know it here on planet Earth. God, we ask that you will visit us, visit each of us with your light and love and disrupt us again. Wake us up from our lethargy. We're waiting for the moment when you come to disrupt everything for all eternity, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, when you will give everyone the true desire of our hearts and when all this earthly waiting will finally be over. God, we pray in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.